All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? Uh, this is Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Kurt Anderson is here today. Kurt Anderson. Do you know Kurt Anderson? Kurt Anderson's got his own gig over there at NPR. It's uh, He hosts uh, Studio 360 for years. And he's written this book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. And you can get that wherever you get books. But I read it. I told all you guys that were listening about it because I was excited about reading it. It just covers it, man. It, it just contextualizes everything. Just the American unconscious. And the, that just kind of bubbled over from from the beginning all the way through till now. Just the, the sort of strange, erratic, fantastical uh, religiosity and uh, hucksterism and uh, self-involvement and the ongoing struggle between reason and bullshit. It's, a, it's really a, a great book, a very dense and readable book. And I was so thrilled about it. I was like, fuck it, man. Let's talk to this Kurt Anderson guy. What compelled him? Because I'm grateful for it. You know, when you, you can tell you're reading an obsessive screed, you know, that was just, just you know, written in fury to understand, to try to get some perspective on what's happening. He was able to really track it that even before this country was settled, it was, uh, you know, religious weirdos landed here. And then you just watched Christianity mutate. And then you watched it. Uh, you watched uh, P.T. Barnum and Hucksterism mutate. Then you watched uh, the New Agers mutate. And then you watched this sort of weird ongoing battle between ridiculous beliefs and I actually uh, facts. And it, it just it's an interesting ebb and flow through 500 years. And as I said before, it's dense, but he's got a, uh, a wry wit and he's kind of cutting so it's uh, it makes it readable and compelling, and I'm going to talk to him in a few minutes. All right? How you guys doing? Everything all right? You all right? How's it going? Exciting times, right? Watching our racist shitbag of a president gain confidence, and conversely, watching once reasonable people lapse and buckle into intolerance and garbage-mindedness. Just an ongoing shit show. A horror, a horror, the horror, the horror. Well, I hope you're all holding up and holding on to something inside yourselves that is righteous and provides a sliver of hope. At the very least, people, have a fun breakfast, maybe a nice piece of melon, listen to some music, enjoy the company of the people you love and like, kind of. And you know what? Maybe help someone out, throw someone a bone, help them out. And also, please, don't kill yourselves. There'll be no killing of the selves. Sword of Trust is opening in more cities this Friday. It's up over 100. Go to sortoftrust.com to see where it's playing near you. I believe we got the number three comedy of the year so far on Rotten Tomatoes. I, I might be making that up. I might have hallucinated that, but it seems kind of specific. Uh, also, go to WTFPod.com slash tour to see my tour dates. I'll be in Raleigh, North Carolina at Good Nights starting this Thursday and then at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon the following week. Okay? All right. So that's good. I promoted myself. There you go, Mark. So I got I to gotta tell you something. A couple things. You know that I'm in this ongoing jazz hole and I'm trying to wrap my brain around the new music, the new musics. 
And I, I got to be honest with you, I was early, earlier today, I was just sitting around listening to Wynton Marsalis's first album, Wynton Marsalis. I, obviously, we all know the name Wynton Marsalis, but did I really know the man's work? No, I did not. I really had no fucking idea. But I'm, as I said, I'm trying to wrap my brain around the whole jazz thing. So I'm reading this book by uh, Nate Chinen. He sent me the book. I'm going to give you my reading list, my summer reading list. I have it right here in front of me. Would you like that? Is it too late in the summer for summer reading list? But I'm reading the, I'm reading the Nate Chinen book. The book is called Playing Changes, Jazz for the New Century, right? So I'm reading that a bit. I'm, I got through about a chapter and a half. But at the end of each chapter, he makes a list of the albums that he discussed. But now I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm listening to Wynton Marsalis's first album after he talks about the when Wynton appeared on the scene, I guess in the 80s. And I fucking had no idea. I had no idea. I mean, it's so ridiculous, but I don't know if you know this, but uh, Wynton Marsalis is a fucking genius. And I don't know what I was thinking, but like, what, am I really that much of a nostalgist? Am I really that guy, the guy that I see that looks kind of like me at the record store about my age, flipping through the bins, looking for their past, looking to connect with something tangible that makes sense? Am I that guy? I don't know. But anyway, talking about jazz, right? Out of nowhere, folks. Out of nowhere, I'm looking at the emails, and um, <laughs> for those of you who listen, who listen to this part of the show, you'll know this is hilarious. Okay, I get an email. Hi, Mark. I knew you'd eventually come around. I've been a fan for years. Podcasts are terrific, even the commercials. Yours, Donald Fagan. Donald Fagan. I knew you'd eventually come around. Oh, it's fucking hilarious. Donald Fagan from Steely Dan knew I'd eventually come around. That was a big laugh. Big laugh. I wrote, uh, one of the great emails to receive. Hilarious. We should talk sometime. I'm still getting the hang of what you did. And my subject line is, I'm going to believe this is you. And then Donald Fagan wrote back, yup. It's me. Pleased to meet you. DF. I knew you'd eventually come around. Anyway, folks, I'll give you my uh, my reading list for the summer. Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson. Uh, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. And then um, It Came From Something Awful, How a Toxic Troll Army Accidentally Memed Donald Trump Into Office by Dale Barron. Uh, this is a great book. It's informative, especially for people of my generation or older who uh, don't really know about uh, Reddit or 2chan or 4chan or about a whole generation of people that were brought up gaming and uh, sharing anime information and how that became just a wave of totally toxic garbage that infused itself into the mainstream and we didn't understand where this stuff was coming from and it just seemed like news to us but uh this is a fucking fascinating book the two of these books together they're a dark portal 
Fantasyland, and it came from something awful. But they're well written, and there's enough humor—not humor, but it's readable and it's very informative about what's you know sort of the history of what's happening and how it's going to continue happening. And then when you get you know a little tired of the darkness and the truth, you could go to some lighter truth. And uh, but this is only if you're a music person. You can read The Birth of Loud, uh, Leo Fender, Les Paul, and the guitar pioneering rivalry that shaped rock and roll by Ian S. Port. Great read, especially if you're into guitars and rock music. And then, you know, if you, and then like me, I haven't finished it yet, but, um, but there's no reason, you know, not to get started uh, with Nate Chinen's book, The uh, Playing Changes, Jazz for the New Century. These are the things I'm reading. Enjoy. Now, I explained to you what Fantasyland is basically about up front there. It's really about the history of magical thinking in America, the the idea of America being a place where you could reinvent yourself, where anything was possible, where utopias uh, were, were possible, uh, and then the sort of evolution of that, you know, through... You know, Christian hucksterism, huckster hucksterism, you know, on all the way through the sort of uh, conspiracies and things of the left and the right, the way the 60s morphed into a new type of magical thinking. And I don't know, it's it's really all there and very specific and beautifully executed. Now, I talked to Kurt about the book and I guess I dropped some names that uh, you should probably, you know, know about. Adam Curtis. We start talking about Adam Curtis because, um, you know, he's Adam Curtis is a, a documentary filmmaker, and uh, I've watched a couple of his documentaries, which I found to be uh, mind blowing. Years ago, two thousand and four, uh, the power of nightmares made a big impact. I actually didn't see that. The two that I watched, sort of back to back, were hypernormalization. And the century of self, and now that I'm looking at his his uh, his uh, filmography, he's done a lot of stuff. But I found uh, hypernormalization and the century of self to be brain changers. All of these things that I'm mentioning to you today changed my fucking brain, including the book about guitars, and just including a chapter and a half of Nate Chinen's book about jazz. The other stuff, darker stuff, a lot of information, but uh, they gave me some relief, you know, right alongside of the terror. You know, it's like if you have free-floating terror because your brain is just taking in information and it's terrifying, you know, that just causes anxiety. But if you have terror that's coming in and then you contextualize it, there's relief in that. Oh, there's a context. There's even a historical context still terrified, but not causing as much anxiety because there's relief in knowing that there's a context as, as opposed to just this fucking bullshit. You know, it's just a, a shotgun full of bullshit clickbait and memes go blasting into your brain as soon as you wake up and turn on your phone. You just, it just sort of like it's on, it's just, it's on scatter. It's like a sawed off. It's not even a tight grouping, just a fucking blast of garbage 
that just blows in through your eyeballs and tries to hook onto your synapses and, and find it just goes in sees if it can find an emotion or a desire or a need that it can latch onto and then it kind of rides your synapses for a little while and then you go tell somebody else and that my friends is how uh, publicity works word of mouth publicity and also fascism okay good times Good times in the autocratic USA. Dig it, man. Kurt Anderson is here. And uh, we get into it, man. We get into it. His book is Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history, wherever you get books. He hosts Studio 360 on NPR, affiliate stations nationwide. And it's also available as a podcast. This is me and Kurt Anderson talking in a New York City hotel room. So I guess I should start by telling you that, like, I don't know, I got the book, in a, you know, I get a lot of books, Fantasyland, and I, I decided to sort of start it, and then I was like, oh my God, all the, all the answers are here. <laughs> all the answers I need are here for the whole thing. And there is some part about it you know, knowing where, you know, you sort of came from in terms of uh, intellectually and comedically and, and uh, politically, that it feels like there, were, there was an obsessive need for you to make sense of this stuff. You know, I don't know if it was fear or, or, or some, you know, need to contextualize it, but what was it that, you know, compelled you to get to the bottom of this particular part of the fabric of uh, American culture and politics? Well, there what you're right about the fact that there was this need that had been simmering along for a while. Yeah. I mean, um, I often, I mean, people make fun of me for harking back to and harping on the fact that, well, I grew up in Nebraska back in the day when it was like this. Right. And 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 one of the things about that that is relevant to this is that, yeah, sure, it was a religious place, it was Nebraska, blah blah, but it wasn't. It just in the religious sense, yeah, it wasn't all nutty, right. Like it got right. in the you know right seventies and eighties and nineties. So that was part of it. But then I guess I just, so it was a thing I'd been thinking about. And like uh, when I asked professors, like, why is America this way right. or that way? Yeah. They didn't really have an answer that satisfied me. And so, so yeah, I, I felt I had to like figure it out, you know, and then, you know, earlier in this century and in the 2000s, when, when it just kept getting, look at that, there's, there's another example of, of, of rampant craziness and everybody getting to think, you know their own facts. Sure, their, their opinions are their facts. I, yeah, I, I really like something's happened here. Yeah, and what it is ain't exactly clear. And so I had to figure it out. And and but you had to figure. And I think you tried to find some comfort in the fact, and it was a lot of research in that they, that not only had it happened before, that this ongoing struggle between reason and magical thinking. It's pre-America, and it's always been a struggle. But I think the thing that that stops the logical minded person is like, how is that still an issue now? Right. And what I didn't really know, I, I mean, when I, when I, I hadn't written a bit, I'd never written a big book like this. I'd written little nonfiction books. I'd written novels, but I'd never written a big book like this. And so whenever I write anything though, it's, it's always, you know, I, I don't totally know what I'm going to do or say or write yeah, or what right, I sure. think the writing is the figuring out, right. you know? And so I didn't know, like, uh, 
I, at first I thought like, wow, is, did this happen in the, did this start in the 60s? And I said, no, 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 no. As I did research and found right. out, no, look, look at all these, these, these bits of DNA that have been there from the get-go. So, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to say until, you know, I was in the middle of saying it, really, in terms of, oh, reassuring that we've, we've always had this. But, and, and yes, I didn't really, and I had a hunch that like, wow, why has America gotten this way as opposed to, you know, yeah. England or Japan or Australia or whatever. And, and then I had to figure that out. And I had to really like try to figure out like, are we really different than those countries? And, and how are we like what we used to call third world countries in right. this way and stuff. So, so, but yeah, it, it was, it was a, it was a kind of like, wow, this, this bugs me and interests me. And, and I guess I have to write a big nonfiction book to figure it out for myself. And it's like, it, the weird thing about the book is, is that it's dense, but you know, because you have sort of a, a, a kind of sardonic sort of humor, you know, it kind of propels it, but it's like, it, it's a lot of information. I mean, you really had to do some homework. And then I guess the intellectual heavy lifting was really positing the reality that the, the nature of this country was, was the promise of, of a type of freedom for, for reinvention and a type of freedom to practice any kind of life you want. And, and then the, the core seed of the book that, that kind of gets it going is that the, the first settlements here were were based on magical thinking. They were religious utopias, right? And then then after that, you get people that are like, "Well, I can be whatever I want." So the, the kind of two through lines of of religious magical thinking and just you know classic American hucksterism, it's really the the ground on which this country's built. That and massacring indigenous people. Yes, which which we should, which I give some uh, time to in this yeah. book. But but yeah, the, the I mean because you know. People always said to me when I was writing novels, oh, would you, would you ever write a novel that's completely not funny? I said, nah, I don't know. I don't think so. It's part of how I think about things. And similarly with this, even though it's about this serious thing and maybe this tragic fall of America and, and all that, like, it's still, there's funny aspects. I, I find these, I find, <laughs> I find Joseph Smith funny. I find all this oh, stuff he's funny. hilarious. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. That, it, but it's hilarious in that horrible way where you're like, how the fuck do people buy this? But again, I don't want to make it all about, oh, it's a bunch of suckers and these hucksters. It is that, yeah. but it's only part of it. And it's people you know, who, who do self-select to come here. Like, oh, there's gold? They say there's gold? I'm right. going. Yeah. You know? Or, or, or what? The Indians are Satan's agents? Ooh. Let's I mean, it's, yeah. it's people. I mean, it, we, in 1600, when, when, when we start, when the Europeans started coming here, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, the Middle Ages, the, the primitive Christianity was ending, except for these freaks, yeah. you know? Yeah. So they brought that old version here. And, and so, and, and there's another kind of belief, too. It wasn't just religious. I mean, religion is part of it, but it's also just this, like, man, build it and they will come. I can do anything. Yeah. I can, you know, the, the enlightenment, it was part of the enlightenment, too. I can, I can. It's a, it's not up to a, to an expert to tell me what to believe. It's up to me to decide what's true. Right. So it it, it was it was a perfect storm of of lucky and slightly unlucky timing. Now, in terms of the humor, because now we can sort of like you know go back a little bit because I know you you know that that was really you know where you you know, defined yourself was with satire for a while. Yeah. And so what where what's your what's your journey there? So you grew up in Omaha. I did in the fifties. 
fifties. I I think of sixties, but yes, sure. But uh, yeah, I was born in the fifties and grew up in, there in the sixties and left in the seventies. And and so how does like what was going on in Omaha? You know, I mean, what like when I'm growing up, I've been through there a couple times. But what was the nature of that city? Was it, I remember the insurance company? Yes. But were you was your family? I know you talk a little bit about in the book. Were they farmers? No. <laughs> no, I, I started dying off that idea. Like, yeah, oh, sure, it was a ranch. And I, <laughs> no, my dad was a lawyer, and we lived in a house, and it was a suburban, nice suburban, you know, leave it to Beaver operation. It was, it was very father knows best, leave it to yeah. Beaver, you know. And you had an older brother. I had three older uh, siblings, and they're they're was, important. Older brothers are important uh, older, in the education. All, all of my older, my three siblings in their respective ways were yeah. all crucial. Right, and when you were in like high school, was the plan to be like a journalist? Yeah, maybe. Well, I, more probably at that point, an academic. My sister, my eldest sister, was becoming a professor. I said, "Oh, that's pretty good." And uh, in what uh, political science oh. at Syracuse, ultimately various places before, but uh, that that looked good. And you know, reading, thinking, yeah, writing. Sure, you know, not yeah. working three months a year. Yeah, you know? I mean, uh, but uh, so no, I didn't know. Well, I I wrote for the school paper and wrote funny things for the school paper. Like what? Um, like a, a a Joseph Heller parody about my high school, about a, a an or and then an outraged thing saying why aren't there any black people in this giant high school, white high school of ours, and stuff like that. I was trying to make trouble in a sure. You Did know, you succeed? Late sixties. Well, yeah. Well, in what? In integrating the school? No. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in making trouble and 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 but not so much trouble that you know they didn't give me good grades and let me into college and stuff yeah and and so well you so you grew up fortunately in a family that put a premium on education and Correct. it was it was you know what you guys did and kind of as i once said to my mother when she was missing all of her children not living there said you know you kind of raised us all to leave here, yeah right right and she and she took a big sigh and said yeah i know so when did you start, uh, when did you, like, so you wrote a Joseph Heller parody in high school, <laughs> yeah. so that was happening, so you were yeah. in, when did you graduate high school? 72. So the world was blowing up. Yeah. And I assume that you're in the, wow, so you're in high school when the bulk of the Vietnam War is happening. Uh, correct. And 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 I got a draft number, and I was, ju- I, I, m- m- people my age never actually got drafted, I, 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 I as in so many right, ways you in were life, younger on just too young. Yeah. You know, I, I was a, you know, middle, younger boomer and uh, and just too young to get, literally just young enough to get a number, but not, not and, young, not old enough to get drafted. And your brother went? No, no, no. No one went? No, nobody went. He had a, he had a heart thing. Oh, not, really? Not bone spurs. He had an actual- A real heart thing. Physical thing, yeah. But like when you, like, because the more I read about the 60s, because I sort of missed it, I'm about a decade younger than you, there was, did you feel that the country was coming unglued? As a child in Omaha, no. I, I mean, I, I was definitely paying attention to the '60s. I, yeah. As a you know, as a ten-year-old, twelve-year-old, fourteen-year-old, fifteen-year-old, for sure. Mm-hmm. And and you know, went from being a you know having literally a picture of Richard Nixon on my wall at the beginning of 1968 when I was 13 to like getting high and like <laughs> revolution, man. <laughs> when I was 14. You 14. Know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, that's good. Yeah. So you're getting high in Omaha at 14. Uh huh. Oh, that's good. So it made it up that far. The the oh, drugs. Sure. The, the the dead were playing in Omaha all the time in sixty seven. Really? Oh sure. No, and there was this little like Soho like 
part of town where there was a head shop and it was oh you know, yeah it, it was yeah. all happening those pipe the t-shirts and the pipes and the bongs and the posters black light posters all that you saw the dead in 67 uh i didn't actually but every every all of my siblings and the, I, the slightly older kids did yeah so you had the brother down the hall in the house that had the posters and the records and the and was everything. in a no he was in a rock band he was in first as a child the 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 fabulous impacts oh, yeah. and then he started his own band naked afternoon and how they do? Uh, they did fine. And then he then he had a band called Kraken, and they made albums. And he has records out. He has records out. And he he, Guitar? he, he wrote a song for the Temptations. He wrote a song for Fog Hat. I oh, was, he was cool, man. Which Fog Hat song? I don't know. One of the big oh, ones. Oh, Blue Spruce Woman. It's called. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did he do all right on that one? He did all right, and now he has a wonderful life, uh, uh, rebuilding and creating and restoring old grand pianos. And wow, yeah. And he's like a mat world class. Uh, piano technician, yeah. Really? Did, is he here? No, he's in Los Angeles. Ah, that's an interesting niche job. It's a great niche job, yeah. And he's re- apparently, you know, a one of the wizards. Out. Yes, indeed. And, and you have two sisters. I do. And they're both academics. No, one of them's an academic, and and one of them is a is an executive whisperer, executive coach, uh, uh, consultant. Oh, one person. of those people. Yeah, well, like the, the, all yeah. all of your former uh, Comedy Central and other bosses have have. Hired her. I oh, oh yeah, you. to sort of reconfigure their career trajectories Some, and their personal and, and how they how they deal with their employees. And yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. It's a, yeah, that's a weird magical sort of profession. That one, the consultant, because when you ask them what they do, it's sort of like, oh, that seems a little vague, but I understand. It's, it's priestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and and then you just uh, there was no other you just you wanted to go to Harvard. I wanted to get out of Omaha. But Harvard's a big, I mean, that's like... No, a, and I applied to a bunch of, I applied to colleges back when, you know, literally, I don't think my parents knew where I was applying to college, and I just did, and and, uh, and I got in, and and I got into Harvard, so I went there. Did you know what you were getting into? Eh, I'd, I'd uh, well, I mean, I guess I'd visited once, uh, but know what I was getting into, kind of. I mean, I knew I was, I was going to the East, I was going to a city, and... Yeah, I was. I, this was a this was a portal into the some version of the life I wanted. Yeah, and what? So you're at Harvard in 1972. 72. Yeah. Now, like, when you get because I'm fascinated with Harvard because there was no way I was going to go there because I just didn't, I obviously didn't have the grades and I didn't have the understanding and and now when I look at Harvard, you realize there's sort of a guarantee that comes with Harvard that you will be placed in society to a certain degree. Uh, you you will be uh, you you're anointed somehow. There's a there's some privilege as definitely involved yeah. that that it that it annoys. No, there's no question about that. And when when you got there, what were you going to study? Uh, you know what I did more or less. You know, sociology, social studies, economics, history, that stuff. There was no then creative writing right. study, and so it was like which which version of like academic study do you want to do? And I and I thought that liberal was, arts. Yeah, but but specifically, kind of the history, social science stuff. Yeah. So you're interested in people? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, I I don't know. I can't. That's I I I'm not uninterested in people. But, but I, mean, I was interested in what was I interested in? I was interested in like being interested. I also st- I took a lot of art history courses. I liked that a lot as well. Oh yeah. So it's sort of broad spectrum, you know, intellectual foundation. Yeah, it was kind of a liberal arts thing. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, but like sociology and art history, you know, yeah. it, you were not in any way. A science guy? Oh no, no 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 no! I had done oh fine in math and science as a child, and then there was this point 
when I was 14 or so, and I just reached the amount, the limit of math that I could understand, and I suddenly was getting bad grades. I hadn't gotten bad grades before. I said, I got to get out of this. <laughs> I got to get and, out of math. And, and back then, at, the, yeah. at this perfect late 60s time, they kind of allowed me to, no, sure, whatever you want, young man. And, and so I didn't have to do math anymore or science after, after a sophomore year in high school. And was, was there like um, a, a lot of uh, trouble on campus, you know, in, in the early 70s? Because like it just, you mean in high school or in college? No, in college. I mean, I guess the war was coming up to it an end. It was over. Yeah. And in fact, my, my feeling arriving uh, there, just having turned 18 and 1972, was like, man, I've, I missed this. I fucking missed the whole student hippie yeah. thing it's done right that was my sense but the but the the clothes were still around i mean the, yeah sure the clothes were still around the drugs were still around but music like was different but like like basically you know vietnam was winding down and the draft was over so like meh. i mean that was for my me personally that that was the sensation that like wow that the high stakes how's this gonna end is a revolution gonna happen that was over the revolution was over that was my sense as a as an 18 year old from nebraska yeah were you the head writer at the lampoon they didn't have a head writer but but i got i i you you try out and you write things and then they either elect you or don't to the harvard lampoon and and i did right away uh my first fall in college and 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 got elected and uh that was my life i mean that you know i also did this i Went to class and did your sociology and your history. Yeah, but but the lampoon instantly became the entire center of my universe. And and how does like because I've talked to people who were there much later and they may be an honorary whatever over there. I got a little medallion of some kind. Oh really? Yeah, they had me in. So let's let's do our secret. Yeah, I I don't I don't remember the secret thing. (laughs) Me neither. But but there is sort of it doesn't seem because I I I guess I romanticize it because I know there was a lot of people of your generation that made tremendous you know, headway comedically and satirically yes. in the world. But like these, when I got there, it was like, there's a bunch of kids, you know, yeah. I'm like, you're in charge. But I guess you guys were kids too. As soon as I arrived, I happened to meet Sandy Frazier, who became a writer at The New Yorker and still is a writer at The New Yorker and a, was an incredibly funny guy and a brilliant writer and and his friend, Jim Downey, who, these two guys who were in the Harvard Lampoon. I didn't know anything about the Harvard Lampoon. I didn't, but I met them right away. And I thought, yeah. man, th- these are my people. I got to yeah. join this. And, and so- were they deeper or, or better? I don't know. They were fantastic. And 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 the other point for future cultural history of the next forty five years is that there was not yet this 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 pathway from the Harvard Lampoon to writing for TV, show business, show right. business. I mean, I mean, it happened here and there, but like that wasn't a thing. And and Jim Downey. Uh, really was the, you know, I don't know, patient zero of that operation. Graduated from Harvard uh, and uh, and went to, uh, just as Saturday Night Live was beginning and became a writer and... and, and oh, he and, was the guy that stayed there for like 40 years, correct, right? Yeah. Correct. And, and, and out of that, you know, other Lampoon people did and The Simpsons started and... So voila. he's the guy. He, he is the guy. And when you get to the Lampoon, like what was the... Well, I guess maybe... The reason I think that the, the, the younger people were deeper was they were pushing against uh, something more consolidated as, as a bad guy. Like, it just seems like that everything's very fragmented and people are more self, uh, more, uh, it's, it's, it's more self-centered. Whereas I think then you're like, we, we know- The man the- was still the man. Right, a bit. exactly. Yeah. Right, the yeah. man was still the man. No, it's true. And, you know, because like, 
you know, until later, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go here, and then I, then I go to Hollywood, and then I have a big house in Brentwood. You know, I mean, it, that, that's that, really the case now. I mean, it really, that people going into it, once they get in there, they know that, you know, that this is really a career training institute. It was not a place to get that uh, broader education. It was, no, it was not yet a pre-professional thing. It was still like, I don't know what's going to happen to me now. And yeah. you wanted to get like a good education if you wanted. I mean, you could get it. Correct. Oh, well, and obviously you still can. Yeah, you can get that at a lot of colleges, but there yeah. was something about the intellectuals that were attracted to Harvard to teach were, were the guys. Yeah. yeah. And what was the... What what was the lampoon exactly? I mean, what was the idea of it? Well, Mark, um, it was uh, because I've talked to other people yeah. about it, but like it does have a sort of place in comedic history, and it still sort of exists. Yeah. But it seems like I, I'm not sure I'm completely clear on what the original intention is and what it evolved to in the '60s. It started in 1876. It was you know a college humor magazine, and and it was it was a time when all all these college magazines and newspapers and things like that were all starting in America, all over the place. I looked into it what year? recently. 76, oh, 1876. Yeah. Then in the 20th century, you know, and then William Randolph Hearst was hunted and, and helped pay for this insane, wonderful parody castle building. Yeah, it's still there, to, yeah. And, which, is, which is a huge part of why the Harvard Lampoon, beyond Harvard, sustained because it had this funny building. Yeah. You know, that that was part of it. Then, you know, Robert, you know, the great comic comedian, comic writer and comic actor Robert Benchley and other writers came along and then then the 60s happened and then Doug Kenny and Henry Beer were there and then they started the National Lampoon and so they were there before you. Oh yeah. 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 But were they when you got there were they mythic were they heroes? They were and Doug Kenny showed up and was like can we what what god what can we do to you? God, yeah. and he was only, you know, whatever he was, eight years older, seven yeah. years older than we were, you know? But yeah. So, and, and that's sort of where you kind of like honed the writing chops? I don't know about honed, honed the, the, the comic chops such as they were. I mean, writing to some degree, but it was mostly just hanging around trying to make other people who thought they were funny laugh about stuff. I mean, it was... It's like a clubhouse. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's it wasn't it was. like the Skull and Bones or a fraternal organization. Was it affiliated with the Hasty Pudding? No. It was different. It was not, <laughs> and, and uh, so it was that. It was it was where you know in in this in this immediate post sixties time, when when the revolution was over, but but like the anti establishment, counterculturally feeling was yeah. still happening, and that's and that was a golden moment to be there. I think. And what kind of stuff were you writing? Oh, I don't know. You, you know, a parody, a parody of the New Yorker. I remember as for a man who, well, I later went on to write for the New Yorker, and you recently appeared in the New Yorker, so that's why I say that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that, for instance, I don't know, just whatever. Yeah. Like, what What do nineteen year olds write? Who cares? Yeah. But when you got done with Harvard, was there a sort of did you want to? Did you think about trying to write for the real Lampoon? I mean, was that sort of yeah, a thing? Yeah. Well, I, I I don't know. I don't remember that that was. Again, by the time I got out of college, well, no, it was still happening then, and and actually, it was uh, Animal House was just yeah, about it was, to happen. It was pretty good. So last... I don't know. No, I I don't know. I I was just trying to get a job. Like doing what? Uh, I got a job. I got a job uh, uh, through a, a friend of a my fa- girlfriend's father yeah. being a copy boy at the New York Daily News, and and realized uh, I'm happy to pay dues, but this this isn't. The place I want. You don't want to be that kind of newspaper guy. Kinda, yeah. 
I know. And, and, and whenever I tell like my children, like, oh, don't be entitled, you millennials. Yeah. And, and then I have to say, but I did quit my first job after one day. So I guess I was the original entitled kid. You know? I mean, <laughs> well, maybe you just knew better. Maybe you knew yourself a little better. Yeah. But so you decided, though, you, New York was where you had New to York, go. New York, like a, like a lemming-ish yeah. thing. I, this is just where I had to be. Yeah. Why? Had you, what, what position did it hold in your head? Well, I'd seen it on television. I'd seen it in movies. I mean, that that's growing up in Omaha. I mean, watching New York in all of its incarnations, you know, from the 1940s movies to sure. Woody Allen movies to Patty Duke show to whatever was, yeah. uh, wow, yeah, New York. Got to go to New York yeah. for everything. Yeah, I mean, I came here too. You yeah. just Where else are you going to go? Yeah. That was, that was the goal. Yeah, exactly. And But New York was like still really kind of New York. Well, New York, when I arrived, was, you know, at its nadir. I mean, it was, I mean, you know. 77? 76. Crime had crazily increased for the last 10 years. You know, the city had gone bankrupt five months earlier. I mean, it was, but that, but you're you're 21. Who cares? Right. That, that's great. And what were you doing? Like, like, what was the scene? What was your scene? You're not, you don't strike me as a punk rock guy. I went to CBGB's. <laughs> yeah, I did. I didn't play, but I no. went. And uh, so I, and I got a job. I, I did. I quit this uh, copy boy job and got a job writing for Gene Shalit. You recall Gene? Sure, Shalit? the movie reviewer on the Today Show. Movie reviewer and interviewed all the directors and the actors and authors. All the he was the cultural guy. Yeah, with and, the big mustache and that correct, half. Correct, and and most my, my main job for him, however, was he also had a daily radio essay on, and the NBC radio network. Right, it was funny stuff about the news or whatever, and he hired not me. movies. And no, not so much. And uh, about whatever, and about yeah. culture. Anyway, so I wrote those, and I was doing that, and that was a great job, and he was a great boss, and living on the Lower East Side, and going to CBGBs, and you know. Doing the New York thing. Doing the New York thing. So would you say that that, that experience working for Shallot started to you know, connect you to the cultural fabric, fabric of New York and get you sort of like on the job with the funny writing? Uh, no. I mean, it, it, was, it was a creative job. And it right. Was, and it was paid, you know, $17,000. It was a good salary. That's good. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, but, and then I fell in with a guy, Tony Hendra, who, who you probably know Tony. Well, yeah, yeah he's the Lampoon guy. Uh, he was a National Lampoon guy, yeah. And, and was on, and, and, film, uh, a film was about to be in uh, Spinal, uh, right. character in Spinal Tap. Anyway, he was putting, he was, he was one of these people who was doing parodies. And, and now somebody else I knew doing parodies. So we did a, a New York Post parody with somebody else. And I did a Wall Street Journal Where were they parody. being published? Like, where were the Just one-offs. Oh, 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 so they come out as magazines. As, as, as physical papers. Right, yeah. right. Exactly, and uh, uh, and and so so that that's how I kind of fell into that world a little bit. But you had been like there was some weird. There's no coincidence. I mean, the lampoon sort of shaped you for that a bit. Oh, for sure, for sure. And we and 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 I worked on national parodies, the sport parody of Sports Illustrated at the Lampoon, and 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 so no, I I saw that. Oh, this is a thing that you can do, and. And, and and you do yeah you hone your skills and all that. But it's interesting because there's there was a time where I mean that those are kind of refined like that's one thing Lampoon did and I remember you know vaguely those things you're talking about that you know these were very sort of specific and refined uh, uh, very um, detailed parodies uh -huh. big big scale parodies full scale yeah, yeah. and I I think that they like I wonder I I. I I, before I talked to you, I, I started to wonder in the face of really the subject matter of Fantasyland, you know, what, what power does satire really have in the culture we live in? 
you know, because it seems to me that, you know, leading up to creating Spy Magazine and, and being sort of New York centric around those satirical attacks, that it did have some cultural impact. Cultural impact, sure. Did it make the world better? I, I can't say that, but definitely had cultural impact. Yeah. So, so it was. Was it that? Was it these parodies that that led? How long before you started to put uh, Spy together? Uh, I uh, I don't know, six seven years. Oh, I really? met I met my a guy Graydon Carter, at, who was also a young writer, at, uh, not quite as young writer at uh, Time Magazine, and uh, we just became friends and started talking about what, well, you know, what, what's our next thing? What are we going to do? And, and had, and came up with this idea for, a, you know, a funny, but journalistic magazine, not the, not the lampoon Harvard or national, which was just humor, but that wedded to journalism. And that was the idea we came up with for spy and nothing. There was nothing like that going on at that time. Uh, -uh. It really wasn't. And, and there, and there wasn't, and, and our thought was, you know, we'd been here a few years and we thought like, wow, you know, we're learning all this stuff about this and that, about the New York Times, about these rich people, about this business guy. And kind of like the kind of reporting we were trying to do, as well as being funny about it. I mean, you know, our, our, our motto was smart, fun, funny, fearless. Right. You know? So, so you guys would sit down and you hired writers. Hired, yeah. But you were all sit down. You had, you had sort of a... Uh, a manifesto to how you were we did we had a mission it. a mission that's yeah. what yeah 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 and it was a monthly magazine 10 times a year originally and, and at first it was going to be all new york focused and then it was successful you know in the way that it was successful so it became a couple a year or two in no oh, this we can this is national you know so yeah so this is what 80 what 86 we start fall of 86 so this is a decade after you got here, and New York is I, I since just turned thirty-two years old. Oh, yes. the ripe old age of thirty-two! But 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 New York had risen like a phoenix oh, out yeah. of its bankruptcy. Correct. And now we're talking about the era that uh, Thomas Wolfe wrote about. That you Correct. know, Wall Street was going crazy. You know, Fiorucci's was popular. Right. Uh, Dan was happening. All Studio that. Fifty Four. You know, and yes, new wave, and 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 it was coming back, and Uptown was going downtown, and downtown was going uptown, and wow, yeah, yes, exactly. But you, I, but I, I imagine in the mission of spy, you realize like, well, in this excess <laughs> lies the truth of the human condition, which is just monsters. We're surrounded by fucking monsters. That that, that could have been the the larger <laughs> mission: smart, fun, funny, fearless, and then that exactly. <laughs> and he set out to take down the monsters. Not take them down, but certainly right. cause them get them into the light. discomfort. And yeah. yes, get them into the light. Exactly. Uh, you know, we did not provide comfort uh, to the afflicted so much, but we did want to afflict the comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> that, now, that sounds like a mission statement. <laughs> and, and when did you know you were doing that? When, Pretty when, immediately. When you poked them and they, they, you got it. The bear growled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah right. Pretty quick? Right away. Yeah, right away. Pretty much. <laughs> because, you know, whether it was the, the New York Times or Donald Trump or right. all the other uh subjects of our who are some of your other favorite whipping people well those were definitely two i mean uh we all we, we got a whole different kind of uh, uh uh reaction when we started talking about hollywood we had people out in los angeles and talking about caa and mike ovitz and 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 again we were just just knowledgeable enough and and just on the cusp of young and not young to be dangerous a little dangerous well, yeah, because like uh, you know, these you know, honestly, especially the the show business uh, industrial complex is really the the that's where the, the 
that's where the cultural mirror is generated. Right. So, you, you know, if you fuck with them, if you fuck with the illusion. Right. Then. It's true. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to. Look at that man behind the curtain. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why. Well, see that. I think that then Spy must have provided some sort of template for what. It, if anything, you did change the nature of journalism a little bit mm. in terms of how magazine publishing was done, and also how you know that that line of of humor and and actual reporting. Like, I mean, you know, Hunter S. Thompson did his thing, and this seems like the next turn. No, that's well said. And, and you know, Mad Magazine, National Lampoon, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, various, I mean, Norman Mailer, various kinds of bits and pieces that had been done journalistically, yeah. and, you know, uh, for sure were, were our influences. And, and then as, as the boomers uh, were becoming of age and taking over the world, there was this audience for like, yeah, let's look at the world that way. Let's let's get a let's get a strand of this into real journalism for sure. So so yes, we were influenced by, and then yeah, we we influenced for sure. Yeah, and it seems to me that like in order, like because now that we talk about it like this, like Fantasyland, this could have been written by an academic, right? I mean, I don't, I wouldn't consider you an academic, but I'm saying if in in, no. in in a certain in someone else's hands, this approach to history, you know, this is sort of like you know Howard Zen, the People's History of the United States. This is like this is some other strand of how to look at history. But if you weren't able to approach it with humor, it would it would be not only difficult to read, but it would be completely horrifying. <laughs> But it would be it would be just too depressing. I mean, it's pretty right. depressing as it is, I guess, to many people. But yes, that and also, I think a conventional academic uh, wouldn't quite have been permitted by her or his lane, academic lane, right. to to go all over the place as I do in that book. This book. Now let's talk about New York for a minute. Yeah. Um, what what's happened? Well, Mark, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, like. Because you you actually were there to experience it and and doc, like you know when I see movies have you watched those Adam Curtis documentaries at all? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? Yes. The hype- no Adam Curtis is the uh, if, if I, I'm so glad you met Adam, met mentioned Adam Curtis yeah. because I, I regard this in some neighborhood in my dreams yeah. of Adam Curtis. Right. It, it sort of, it might've been like some sort of reaction to hypernormalization that, you know, that, that weird sort of, uh, those dueling trajectories of, of Syria and Trump and, and New York in the seventies, like the intellectual juxtaposition without really saying, you know, having a, a an argument, it, the way he makes his movies, it, it's really devastating and, and, and enlightening in a way. But I guess the point being that you know you were sort of you weren't here in the early seventies when it was rubble, right? But you were here, you know, for the rebuilding. I, I was here. Well, I was here in like when the Bronx was burning. I was here, you know, Son of Sam, and right. Like, oh my God, where's this going? For sure, it's so. really hard to imagine that this city was in that sort of dire straits. Yeah, no, it was, and and cheap. I mean, all the good aspects of that. You didn't buy a building a, in nineteen seventy eight. I didn't, <laughs> but but I could have a really nice apartment for four hundred dollars. That would now be over four thousand dollars for right. sure. You know, yeah. so in charting like the you know the people that you were kind of like reporting on during the eighties, yeah. You know, like when like you know you were you have been a nemesis of Trump or an early nemesis of Trump, yeah. Like he knew who you were, yeah. 
and I didn't know who and we I did, we didn't know who he was. My my partner Graydon just literally kind of discovered. I mean, I didn't I'd never heard of Donald Trump, but you probably helped build him in some way. Well, in some way. And and, yeah. and, and Graydon had been assigned uh, to for to write a freelance piece, I think, for GQ magazine about Trump and came back. and I just met this guy. You won't believe Kurt, this guy. <laughs> and what a thug and what an idiot and what a bombastic fool and what yeah. a, all, all that he is. This is in 1985 at yeah. this point, you know. And uh, like, tell me more. And so, yes, he became a. And he's well on his way to like he had amassed most. He had amassed most of his father's real estate. And yes, he was just starting though, and he was just building Trump Tower, and he had just uh, converted this crappy old hotel on Forty Second Street to a nice hotel. And what we learned from like Adam Curtis and wherever he learned it was that you know he got a sweet deal from the state. That, you know, they they gave him money on the promise of redeveloping this broken city. Exactly. Yeah. It, well, and no, I wonder if he's actually made that analogy to it. And now I'm it's a broken America, and I will fix yeah. it. But that, yeah, no, exactly. He he made out like like a bandit uh, in the in the 70s and then the early 80s by by like yeah okay we'll we'll fix it up. You know. Yeah, he got these sweet deals from the correct banks. when they'd give it away. Yeah, and and like whatever tax abatements you need. Yeah. Right, and so. When when Graydon comes back to you with this information, then you guys just sort of targeted him, basically? Well, he also... This was actually maybe even before we were starting Spire, when we were just thinking about it. Yeah. Because by the time Spy started, there was a Trump Tower. And no, and, and the other thing he said was, was like, and the guy, he's a big guy, he said. He's as big as we are. And he said, but he's got the shortest fingers you've ever seen. <laughs> right. And so that became a thing. Where yeah. It began, like, just... And that and kind of resurfaced during the election. The, well, indeed. Short, what was it? Weirdly. Short-fingered Vulgarian. Short-fingered Bulgarian. We, we <laughs> called him. Anyway, so he became a subject. He was, And he was this big, you know, bullying... You know, bachelory jerk, and and so like we thought, oh, this is a funny, this is a guy to make fun of yeah. and report on. Yeah, so we did. And and who else were your main? Oh, targets? I mean, he was. I mean, it's hard. He he now looms so large in retrospect. It's almost hard to imagine the others. But all kinds of you know, uh, and Mike Ovitz right. in Hollywood, and and uh, various people in television news and business people, and you know some of whom are well known, some of whom aren't. Billionaires of various kinds. Yeah. Uh, you know Henry Kravitz, who subsequently hired and 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 effectively fired me. Um, At you know New York lots of magazine? people. Yeah. Was that was that when did that start? So that that was not after Spy New York Magazine. Oh, New that, York Magazine. No, that was like it felt a gener. It was a generation older. It started in '68. But I remember like when I was a kid that there was it. It did turn towards what Spy was doing at some point a little more right well, a little more humor probably i took it over yeah <laughs> yeah right yeah what, what when you were a that? kid yeah what year was that 94 okay i wasn't a kid right you're a young man yeah i was a young man i was a 30 years old <laughs> okay. 31 okay. years okay. old yeah. but yeah but yeah. there was a change yeah. Right. yeah and that made it more popular i don't know about that but there was but 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 yeah i think we made it better and 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 you know uh, kind of a generational change, yeah. So one of the things I'm I'm experiencing as somebody who lived here in the uh, late '80s for a few years and then on and off, you know, for many years, was that I don't know who lives here anymore, and and I don't I don't quite have a full understanding of what's happening to the city. Like I see a lot of where buildings. did you live then? I lived on second between A and B, eighty nine huh, we to ninety two. Oh, really? I lived on Ninth Street between first and second. Yeah, I loved it. You know, it was a lot of heroin and a lot of stuff, and then yeah. you know, eventually Giuliani kind of pushed them into the water or wherever they went. There, I remember the, the the military occupation of the NYPD after a certain point. 
and then I lived on 3rd and 16th for a few years. And then eventually I got an apartment in Astoria that I held on to for like a, almost a decade. And But like I come back now and it seems like there's there's a lot of empty buildings that, that look like they're not lived in. And it seems like a lot of the people, and I'm speculating, but it feels like there was once a, a time where people who worked in the city of all economic strata at least could have a place to live here. And it seems like that they're all gone. Uh, I would say you get out of Manhattan. Right. Uh, which is, which is, I mean, you went to Astoria at a certain point, and you did get out of Manhattan in that sense. So I would say, uh, and and uh, no, I mean, I, I did not leave Manhattan because it was becoming too full of rich people, yeah, uh, or anything like that. But it has, uh, you know, I, I, certainly when I moved into the neighborhood where we moved to in Brooklyn, my wife and I, our little our babies, thirty years ago, yeah, it was. It was Italian. It was. It was. It was. It was economically integrated and diverse. Right. Not so much racially. Right. But it seems like what kind of got lost, and, and it's weird because I remember when you know they, when Giuliani under his reign when they rebuilt Times Square mm-hmm. and they you know they kind of pushed a lot of people out down here for for real estate speculation. Yeah. I mean, the Times Square thing actually began a little before July, to be fair. Yeah. Yes, it, but there was this sort of part of like this like seedy nostalgia that yeah. I, that like oh it's, they're ruining it. Yeah. But when you go up there, it's sort of like you realize like I think this was the original intention that. Of what this was supposed to a be, a thousand percent. That th- this is returning it to its glory yes. in a modern way. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, it's it's a it's a yes. I I think that's exactly right. That's that was the vision of all those big lights and everything. Right. It wasn't meant to be like <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to get killed. You know. I mean, it was meant to be like <laughs> oh yeah, it's a little you know saucy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But you go there now, and it's a, quite a spectacle. Even even it doesn't even matter what the lights are representing. But you go yeah. there, and you're like, wow, this well, is like a hallucinatory experience. And and, and the the thing about New York's change that when no matter okay it's all yuppies oh it's all rich people yeah. all, yeah, all that stuff okay sure 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 we can talk about it but now things. it doesn't even seem like yuppies well what all, all I, I will say I mean I I if the miracle and I this is a hobby horse of mine and I'll never stop saying it but there are today 87% fewer murders in New York City than there were in 1990 when I was a kid here 87 87% I mean that that is as I say, it's as close to a miracle as I will ever experience in my life. And what do what you... Uh, uh, well, that's a whole other three-hour conversation. I don't know. I mean, there are all kinds of theories about why that's true. I mean, it's true. I mean, obviously, crime has gone down in America, generally. Killers realize that, that it wasn't as ripe of a, a killing ground and no, they've moved out. I mean, all kinds... You know, it's... Police... It's, uh, policing is, is part of it, but, you know, is it... Is it there's, a, there's, a, there's, a legitim, there's a legitimate set of of scholarship about the fact that it's uh, getting free of getting uh, lead free gas made people less criminal. Really? Uh, that uh, increase of abortions reduced the number of murders. There's all kinds of controversial pieces to a theory, but there is no one theory. And therefore, because it's kind of mysterious, you know, from 2,200 murders to 300 murders in 25 years, what? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a miracle. And, you know, if if the price of that is too many Starbucks. Okay, I'll make that trade. You yeah, know? <laughs> sure. You know, sure. But if the price of that is like you know too many police and and really sort of you know uh, you know pushing the marginalized further out onto the Correct. margin. Yeah, I mean, Correct. right. Correct. So it's a it's a Faustian 
Well, or or maybe just like you know, okay, we solved that crime problem 15 years ago. Let's now let's now go to the other thing. Right, and, and that was the theory behind De Blasio becoming mayor, for instance. Is, yeah, you know, okay, good. New York's back. Let's work on inequality and misery. And, right, you know, see what we can uh, do with that. criminal law enforcement. You know? But yeah, and, but the feeling I get is that it seems like a lot of the real estate is owned by you know, uh, I guess you know, carpetbaggers from. From uh, you know the you know China and Russia and 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 your you know other money coming so, in. Yeah, there is that, and and the, the, all of the empty the empty uh, retail uh, storefronts th- that does bug me. You know? Well, that's going to happen everywhere. I mean, who the hell goes to stores anymore? But I mean, you know. Well, but that's than- not no. But it's not because they're going out of business. It's because the landlords are demanding too much money. Right. It's the the invisible hands are not. Yet right grasping correct. So the cuter shops that were you know more not yeah. even mom and pop, but yeah. at least someone's big idea. Right, but the, but again, that's what I say. That's one of the one of the pleasures of living in 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 places other than Manhattan is there are still more of those quirky, odd mom and poppy. Oh yeah, places sure. You know? and, but you know another thing that's left though with when as you know the rent control apartments went away and and lofts you know got cleaned up was that it seems like there was a whole sort of world of of um, a certain type of performance art and and I think some visual art that kind of like had to recenter itself somewhere else, which is all out in Bushwick, essentially. Is that know? where it is? Yeah, now? yeah. Because when I was still here, there was kind of the, the crashing wave of whatever the New York's performance art scene was. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and it was in your neighborhood, in my yeah. na- old neighborhood. Yeah, right. Exactly. There were weird little theater yeah. spaces. Oh, look, Eric, but goes uh, what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I watched him work something out for you know Me five too. or six times. Yes. Yeah. But that's all gone. They've all moved to Connecticut. Uh, well, that happens too, or they have their kids, or they yeah. whatever, um, or they haven't made enough money. Yeah, you know, because oh no, I mean, can't really, stay here. Right. I mean, Gotta you know, go. I mean, show me what a million dollars buys you in New York City versus Connecticut. I yeah. mean, I mean, the the money that there's more money here. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it you know goes that, a little further. It's, it's not no surprise. Yeah. yeah. So you go from Spy, then you edit New York, and then you do some other things. But you do end up with this radio show forever. Uh This is like too long. An institution. You should take over. No, no, we we need you out there. But I mean, how did that start? That started uh, when uh, uh, I'd actually in 1999. I was doing various things and writing. I just. Oh yeah, I just published my first novel actually, and and in fact, I, uh, this is not how it happened. But in fact, I was off. I was I was doing a, a public radio show to promote the novel, and I and I was in WNYC here in New York, and I saw whoa, whoa look interesting. They're starting this new show, and, huh? and so I knew about this idea for a show they wanted to do. And then out of the blue, a month later, when somebody called me and said, "Hey, would you be interested in talking to us about being the host of this show?" I said, "Oh, you mean this show?" And they were astounded that I knew what they were talking about. And, Blah, yeah. blah, blah. So there was a bit of serendipity, synchronicity going on. And uh, then they said, well, we think you'd be, you know, we think you could do this. I said, I've never done any radio except when I've appeared on other people's shows. You yeah. know, I don't, well, why? I said, well, we just think so. You know, it's your background. You're, you're doing this. So anyway, one thing led to another. And I, you know, tried out. And they said, yeah, sure. Let's do this. And, and uh, yeah, crazily, it's it started, we, we started, uh 2000 and uh here here it is still it's 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 lasted so much longer than any other of my you know multiple gigs in life it's but, crazy but isn't it great though in the sense that sure. 
you know, like even going back to you know what your interests were in college is that you know when you have a radio, even more so than than writing because there was something visceral about talking about yeah. something, is that you know through your show, the I think the main thing that makes it unique is you can kind of weave all of your intellectual interests, you know, into it and put them together however you want. A bit, yes, no, indeed, and 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 because unlike you, I don't know when you started like performing and yeah. and talking out loud. I had my little bits and pieces of it, part here, part there, but like public performing was not a thing I did. So while, wow, you know, I mean, here I am 40 years old, over 40 years old, like you really, you want me to start figuring out how to do so this? Best time to get into radio. But it was, it was, I, I, I loved it. And, and uh, so yes, you can, you can, you can, you know, you're just talking so yeah. you can, uh, be reminded of X, Y, or Z from your right. life or from a book you read or from whatever. It's fantastic, yes, yeah. exactly in the way you say. And, at least the way we do it, with, with producers who do all the hard work, right. it's so best. much easier than anything else I do. <laughs> yeah, good producers are the best. Oh, I mean, really, I mean, writing anything is hard. Yeah. Writing a magazine article or a book is really hard. And and really, yeah, there. Okay, yes, there are people who help you, and there are editors and copywriters. But it's it's your di- it's your thing. Whereas this, I don't know about you. I mean, I just go in and get to talk to somebody I am interested in exactly. for an hour, and then they turn it into radio. Yeah, yeah. Or and also sometimes they're like, you know, I don't know if you thought about this, but he, you know, they'll put something in your ear, and you're like, oh, yeah, I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and then you sound super smart. That's the best. Yeah, yeah. that's the. No, great... no, you suddenly name the role that yeah. Jeff Goldblum had in 1979. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you had someone do the research and put it in your head. Yes. That's the best part of radio. But okay, so now let's get back. Get current so I can get some answers. Okay. So what was the direct, like we brought up Adam Curtis, who I find fascinating. You know, I, I, uh, you know, the two movies that, you know, the, uh, what was it? There was the one, the hypernormalization one. What was the one about Trump and Assad and and Kissinger and you know, and then when there's the, one the other one, the, one. Se- the Century is the Century of Self. Century of Self. With that, that was about that. Uh, that was the one that was my epiphany. The PR industry. So, so your epiphany was, you know, uh, the the when the sort of the trend of psychotherapy. Yeah, and and the way he he blends. Why am know, I forgetting his name? Freud's uh, nephew. The, oh, uh, uh, the guy who invented uh, PR. Uh, Bernays. Bernays. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, the thing that fascinated me about that, and also the thing that you you don't that you're you're very diligent and thorough about in your book is that. A lot of this magical thinking, it became, you, you know, prevalent on the left and in culture with the baby boomers post acid who were into self-realization, yeah. which which was a sort of the perfect amalgamation of the, the of the thesis where you can invent yourself, but you can also invent whatever kind of fucking magical thinking uh, structure or paradigm that you want, commit to it, and it, it's going to have some sort of ripple. Right. No, precisely. And and again, I didn't know, I, I wasn't raised religiously, so I didn't know anything really very much at all about Protestantism. So I had to do a lot of research and, 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 and to learn about that because that's so deep in this. The different schools of, of Christianity the and how they school, broke apart. Correct. Yeah. And, 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 and the basic idea of Protestantism, that you know the priesthood of all believers, that every believer is a priest, not like these Catholics. And, and, and I'd never thought about it before. And, and in the reading I'd done, hadn't really seen it the lines drawn, the dots connected between that, like, wait, you know, the Protestant said in 1550 or yeah. 1604, 
I don't need a priest. I can just read the Bible and figure out what it means and what I should live and how I should do because of that. Whoa, I'm the priest. I get it. Well, that carried to all kinds of extremes is what we got here. I mean, and so I'd never, that was like one of the, I don't know, 10 revelations I had or 20, whatever, in, in researching this book that I thought, uh-huh, that's interesting. Because we talk about, oh, Protestant work ethic, oh, wasp, oh, all this, oh, crazy evangelicals. Oh, yeah, sure, all that stuff is there. Yeah. But this this more fundamental piece of, of what it means to be Protestant in your understanding of your relationship to God and truth and all right. that is this other thing that I had just I didn't know anything about. Are you talking about being untethered from the church to go ahead and start your own church? Well, that too, and combined with entrepreneurial, like right. let's make a buck, yeah, Americanism, sure. yes, but also just the wait. I don't need a priest to tell me what's what. Right. I, it's really up to me. Yeah. And 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 the way that in which that really does relate to the simultaneous enlightenment, which is no, you don't need I mean the enlightenment we all think of as oh, you don't need religion, but it was just you don't you can all figure it out whatever it is on your own right. by studying. Well, that plus plus this, you know, application kooky of will. Protestant religion thing yeah. and application of will together, I I I I really felt like wow. You know, I, I, I'm not saying nobody's ever said this or put these together, but it, for me, it was a, it was the one of the little things I mixed up as I was doing research here that I got, okay, I'm on to something here. Well, I like the whole sort of like dealing with the, the kind of, um, you know, now that people talk about themselves as brands, whether they're on brand or yeah. off brand, yeah. and the sort of evolution from the, you know, the sort of 60s enlightenments to the me generation, because I, I think that, you know, just as damaging that you know religion organized religion or, or amassing people into these religious movements and you know uh, profiteer you know profiteering off of them but also mobilizing them to nefarious deeds or or to sort of fascistic deeds you know on the other side of that you were careful to sort of explore the kind of uh the other movement, which was to empower people uh, to be, you know, themselves and whatever version that is, and, and and attain some sort of nebulous spirituality through diet or yoga or whatever crystals or yeah. right. But like it seems like the the more powerful uh, side of that politically are are the rubes that that are angry and feel like they're doing something for God. Where the other side of the '60s thing is like you get you know, kind of progressives by name, many of them successful, who are really about, you know, just sort of self-realization, which, you know, is in and of itself somewhat ineffectual uh, politically. Well. Other than, like, how do I, you know, ultimately uh, alleviate my guilt by paying, you know, putting my money into something, but still do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah, sure. I mean, they are different, as I try to describe in this book, different flavors of, of, of you know, irrationality and some are more benign or less malign than others for sure the 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 and the thing where you know you know i i i thought i was going to get more shit for for there's one little dots i connect where i say like well of course as the republican party has gotten more christian over the last 30 years in a way it wasn't before my parents were republicans my mother left the republican party around 1995 or 8 because it had gotten so christian but that was on purpose Correct. But what I'm saying, when I made the point that like, wow, this your party gets more and more Christian, yeah. naturally you're going to fall for things like there's no climate change and, you know, black people are less, or white people are more discriminated against than black people and all these other untrue things. Yeah. You know, your religion is 
to me, nutty and insupportable. So naturally you're going to, it's an easy step over to these other things. Uh, I thought people, and, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe the people who would have hated that didn't read it, but, but I, I think, I think it's, that's what happens is when, when, I mean, nutty beliefs are fine, more or less. Nutty beliefs are fine when they don't become politicized, when they don't spill into the public sphere. If, you know, and that's the way America was. That's the way, that's the way everywhere mostly is. You know, people, are, people believe they're nutty things, whatever they are, or, or they're untrue things, or they're superstitious things, or they're whatever. I don't care. Yeah. As that, that, that Thomas Jefferson quote I quote over and over again. I don't care if my neighbor believes in no gods or 20 gods as long as he doesn't uh, pick my pocket or break my leg. Exactly. Yeah. But now they started breaking our leg and picking our pocket. And so, and yes, and because there's this organized set of churches that really became politicized in the 70s and 80s, that's, that's a big part of the problem. It's not the whole problem, but it's a big part of the problem. Yeah, I guess like, you know, in, in, in a broader, like the, the way it, it impacts me just on the individual level that once you get, once you're able to suspend your disbelief, you really will can and will believe fucking anything. Well, that's it. And and that you know the application of of logic or 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 even sort of you know very shallow research or or uh, uh, some sort of you know inarguable belief in the scientific method right. would would guide most people you know to 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 have some sort of a barometer of of basic truth. But but it just doesn't seem to matter, you know. And what causes that is you know ignorance and stupidity on some level, right? And and this encouragement, this again, as I argue, this thing that's been part of the American character and way. Oh, oh I don't need to trust an expert. Oh, you elitist. I don't need to trust. Oh, book book learning isn't for me. Then sift that through the 1960s and like, man, whatever you want to believe, it's your own, it's your truth, right? right? That was Mark, it. it's yeah. your truth. Yeah, yeah, and that's enough. And, and and that's like, and 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 even if you hated, think you hated the 60s, uh, and like, no, I'm against the 60s. Yeah. Uh, I'm a conservative. No, you, no. Well, then it allowed you to believe these crazy fucking things you believe because suddenly it was a much easier and freer and more legit, and I couldn't challenge it. If you believed whatever. Right. And then in the 60s, there were actually some you know, proven conspiracy theories which fed right. the fire. And then somehow the right appropriated the tool of the conspiracy theory and used it as as uh, as as, um, you know, a, a political tactic. Right. Yeah. It's it's it, I really like the focus you put on P.T. Barnum. <laughs> I mean, like like he goes all the way through the book. And, and I think that's the weird thing is that, you know, once you have this world where everyone can invent themselves and seek, you know, freedom and religious utopias and have the freedom to do whatever they want, that the deeper thing is, is that there's always going to be a bunch of people that are con men and hucksters that are going to take advantage of all the suckers. And that seems to be that combination of like, you know, uh, free thinking and, and uh, you know, religious utopia that the more important uh, leg of the, of the country are the con men. Well, and, and that's capitalism. It, it's not, but, but of course, it does, it, you, could, you could have a socialist con man and a socialist PT Barnum no, no, right, as well. Right. But, but yes, the the, the PT Barnum to WWE and Donald Trump is is one whole thread. And then it always interests me. I mean, PT Barnum. One of the reasons PT Barnum was great is even though his he was like, oh look, you know, it's a mermaid, it's a mermaid. I'm right. showing you or whatever. He winked and he and he would write like, yeah, he was on to himself. He was on to himself. 
I, you know, Joseph Smith, you know, I, 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 so about so many of these people, I wonder if they're onto themselves or not. But anyway. Now that's a good question. He, Barnum was, WWE obviously is, and so there, there, but there are all these. Is Donald Trump? That's the question. And, and there, there are a lot of Americans, and it is part of being American that like, yeah, I know these, you know, Hulk Hogan isn't really beaten up, but like maybe he is, and they kind of hate each other. And look, in, in private life, he's this. So that blurring of, of, of character and, and reality uh, and like, well, maybe, who knows? It's entertaining is, 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 is what America, is the hybrid that America made, started making in, in, in the Barnum age and before. So this is the, like, this is really the storm because now that you know, media is entirely fragmented, there is no sort of mainstay, there is no kind of communal effect of like you know, three networks. Even though some of the shit was, we were getting were, were lies or, or misrepresentations, at least we were all on the same page. And they were page. only you know, white straight men doing it and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, yeah for sure. But, it wasn't but perfect, there, but but. There, but there was a sense of at least you know community, whether it was wrong minded in a, in a. In Here's a the facts: we all agree on the basic facts, right? So that's gone. Yeah. So now, like, it's like it, it, now it's just, it, it, and now you have people within the administration, even the president himself, contradicting himself. You know, in in the course of of three minutes, right? So there, there's no real, like, none of that, none of that seems to matter. Or or saying in his case, no, 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 I never said that. Wait, no, here's the tape of you saying exactly and that, then, you know, four days ago. And then, well, four days is enough for it to disappear. Yeah. So I guess, you know, after all is, you know, said and done, you did all this research. And I know the conclusion, you know, was, was you know, not particularly helpful, but, but at least you were able to prove to yourself and the reader that this is not a, an uncommon, you know, tug of war in, in right. this country between, you know, reason and magical It's thinking. a chronic condition. And 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 we have dealt with and and we have been weird. We have been exceptional all along. I mean, exceptionalism is is not, has been taken lately as the, this you know conservative. No, American exceptionalism means we're great. We're great. We're great. We are great. Uh, I don't hate America. I don't want to leave. Yeah. But um, but we are also exceptional in 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 uh, in that way. In like you know uh, not having in- having a different. <laughs> Grip on the on the on uh, reality. We're, we're exceptional at bullshit. Yes, we are exceptional at bullshit. Exceptional <laughs> at entertainment. We there's a reason we invented you know show business. Yeah. Um. You know. I mean. Again, like a, a religious cult comes over here, and and invents you know entrepreneurial business and show business too. I mean, that's going to get to the un unfettered. That gets us to where we are. After getting through this this book and this research, you know to to sate your own curiosity and, and uh, try to put your fear in perspective. What is your biggest fear about what's happening now in term politically and culturally? Uh, well, is it, is it something that looks like uh, if uh, some sort of like friendly uh, kind of acceptable fascism or, well, I don't know about friendly or acceptable, but yeah, some, some, you know, idiocracy slash fascism yeah yeah yeah, it is uh it is and uh um and 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 this thing uh, you know again i didn't start with this idea though this is going to destroy america i was right "Eh, let's figure this out this has changed since i was a kid let me figure it out but now with the coming of donald trump who by the way wasn't even nominated for president until i'd finished a manuscript of this book so it wasn't like i was reverse engineering how do we get to trump but now that he has a presidency and a movement based on, you know, denying the 
reality and the truth and of, of various kinds. Um, as as I when I, I I quote Hannah Arendt, the great writer about yeah. Nazis and communists and Stalin and Hitler saying that's one of the things they always did they, they is like no we're gonna lie and you're gonna like that we lie and all that stuff so yes the the, the this 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 American tendency not uniquely American but kind of unique in the developed world this American tendency to like uh, not <laughs> my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth yeah. and all that stuff that we've come to and, and 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 let's get rid of the establishment let's get rid of the experts that tell us what we're not we're wrong all that has led us to this place that um yeah could be <laughs> could be the end of things could could be the end of the republic the end of the democracy could be could really get us into a terrible existentially horrible place i've never been a person who screams about that stuff or says, you know, oh, where it's like the end of Rome, or oh my God, you know, Nixon's a Nazi, or I, yeah. I never have been that person. But seeing where we are now, you know, with, with Trump and Trumpism as as the so far apotheosis of this long historical American tendency, it yeah, it worries the shit out of me. Yeah. So what are you what are you doing about it? Uh, voting, um, tweeting a yeah. lot. Uh, you wrote the book, but, but no. I mean, uh, you I, know, I mean, I didn't mean that as an no, indicting. It's just I sort know. of like you, there is a, a powerlessness that one feels. Well, I, I think I, I do feel uh, you know a certain mission drivenness to 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 keep talking about this part of it, which I think underlies so much of it, and letting people who have a better standing to talk about, you know racism or misogyny or other things yeah but i feel like i don't want this part of the nightmare to go unremarked upon because uh it's it's its own part of the nightmare and underlies so much of the rest once once uh people can say this is these are the facts or these aren't the facts uh, then you know you got no society and you can't you have no conversation and you have no debate about well you know, so so uh, it's it's an important. It, it's it doesn't seem as grotesque and horrible and threatening as look at this racist thing he said, or uh, look at this what he's doing to these children in the border, or whatever. Pick your right. thing. But to me, it is important. So yeah, I, so I so I'm you know yeah almost two years after this book came out, I'm still uh, you know ranting about it. Um, you know, and and doing doing my best to you know, yeah, give money to politicians and organizations well, and. Well, I think like I, I think it's an important book, and I and I didn't know when it came out, and I didn't know you know how long it had been sitting around. But when I locked into it, I'm like, well, this should be required reading to a certain well, degree, thank you. and because it, it enabled me, because there's so much that causes anxiety around what we think we need to know and how much we do know. Right. And, you know, and, and, you know, is this new? Is it not new? And there's plenty of people that are like, well, it was bad during Nixon, and, but not unlike you. You're like, I didn't even live there then. But, like, things seem to be worse, and there there seems to be a, a type of kind of accepted, you know, chaos around the information we take in and, and how it's being used. So for me, it, it, it really helped me contextualize a lot of stuff. And, and, uh, and I'll keep preaching it. Thanks for talking and, to and me. And making a movie about it. Are they making a movie? Your movie. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of trust is, I guess it touches into that. And in, 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 in it's weird because I, 
you know, years ago when I was a, a younger person and, uh, you know, kind of angry, but not that educated in, in you know, full formed uh, intellectual understanding of history or anything, I kind of got submerged in the, the specific kind of one world government, trilateral commission, Freemason, Illuminati uh, uh, conspiracy. You know, I was into reading about that. Uh-huh. So I helped deprogram you, really. A little bit, but more so my friend Jim. Like, I remember. He worked for Clinton and Obama. He's been a political guy forever, and he worked in Washington. And, he, and we're, he, I was there during this time. You know, I was visiting him, and we're on the Great Mall, and we just, you know, gone into the the, the Capitol Rotunda. And you know, I actually said to him, I said, "We're going to walk around office buildings all day." And he was like, "This is the Capitol," you know. And but I had no context. I didn't have the appreciation of American history, but I did see the obelisk, uh, you know, and the Pentagon as a, some sort of ritual evidence of a, a, an almost um, uh, magical conspiracy. The Nick Cage movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I had all the information. I just remember ranting about it, standing there on the Great Mall about what Washington really was. And, yeah. and you know, after I take a breath, uh, Jim just looks at me and goes, Mark, people here just aren't that organized. <laughs> well, no, but that to me is one of the things about conspiracies is like people aren't that organized. People can't keep secrets it's it would be really tough to pull off a good conspiracy. Well, yeah, but, it, um, it, but they make pe- they make ignorant or stupid people seem intelligent because they have closure. There's no, you know, you, it's very easy to connect a lot of dots in retrospect. Exactly. So when you make sense of that and it has the punchline you're looking for that satisfies your particular anger or emotions, yes. you're like, that feels good. That's going to settle in as truth. Though. Correct, and, and and it's you know. You write fiction, you write a story, you tell jokes, whatever. It has that pleasure of, oh, it's a tidy, it, 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 there's a callback, and, oh, it connects right. to this. And, and people want reality to be that way, and it, you know, 99% of the time Never. is not. And, and also there's this problem with how every, there's no, nothing has the authority, there, you know, things look like news. Like there's a lot of fiction that goes out there that within a couple of weeks somehow or another it becomes true to a lot of people because they don't know where it came from or what the source is. And, and my dad watches Fox News not because he's a Republican. It just looks like news to him. There's a guy sitting right. there. You know, I don't know why he chooses that one because he's an angry guy, but he was never a political guy. But he can't quite understand how it's not news. Well, that, and, and again, that's, that's, that's part of the problem of somebody like your father who went from the pre-digital age yeah. to the digital age. Right. We're like, whoa, no, look, at I, I saw it on the internet. Right, right. And, 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 uh, and, and, and we just, you know, it's like we were given wands or sabers or something that we don't know how to use properly yeah. with yeah. digital stuff. Well, I, I, I hope, uh, yeah, it seems like there's a fight to be fought, and I hope, uh, you know, we get back to at least some, some respectable form of fighting. <laughs> that's 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 all I hope for. Exactly yeah. right. Is is get it back to a like a like fighting in the old days. Yeah. And you know, I mean things I, I go back and forth. Some days I wake up and think, no, we're 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 fucked. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. And some days I think, no, I mean look, you know, it was Nazi Germany and now they're normal Germany. I mean it can happen, right, right. you know. Just a lot of people have to die. That's well, a, <laughs> that's oh, a, but, be, but or be very uncomfortable. But my it? fear is though, like and I talk about it on stage, is that I think that people that where the switch is thrown in their brain, where they can no longer really have any ability to decipher truth from fiction or, right. or, or what is making them excited against what is the reality. Right. Like, I don't think they can, a lot of them can come back. Like, I, yeah. And, and I think that, that, I don't hear that enough. That like, you know, you have people in your family, like my uncle's one of these guys. It's like, I don't know that they can come back. I don't know that there's a way back. Well, and unfortunately now, as there wasn't, 
60 years ago, uh, there there wasn't all the all the means and venues for keeping them there. Right. No. You no, know, no. if you were just you know your uncle, you're just a crackpot in yeah, Nebraska. Yeah. Like, okay, dude, maybe. But now you, you got your own TV channel, and, and you also got your you just own get website. online, and you know you got friends going like, yeah, we're still here. No, and that that is a new condition, and and you know you don't want to be too like technologically deterministic, and oh, people were used to say that print would be terrible, or or TV would ruin everything. Yeah. 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 I get that, but like. This keeps the nuts and the crackpots and the and the believers in whatever more believing and encouraged and 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 Supported. in a community yeah. than ever has been possible before. Yeah, yeah. And also, yes, in answer to your earlier question, they are going to make a not a movie out of it, but a but uh, there's going to be a, a TV three hour TV thing. Really? Yeah. Are you going to narrate it? I am. That's great. Yeah. Well, well, congratulations and thank you for writing the book and thank you for talking to me. My pleasure. There you go. The book is Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history. That was Kurt Anderson. The other books I'm recommending for your second half of summer reading are It Came From Something Awful by Dale Barron and The Birth of Loud by Ian S. Port and the jazz book Playing Changes, Jazz for the New Century by Nate Chinen. This is a new thing I'm doing. Book Club. Book Club with Marin. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all of my tour dates. I'm going a lot of places. Austin, Houston, Dallas, Detroit, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, D.C., Philly, Nashville, Atlanta, uh, Toronto, Minneapolis. A lot, a lot. Just go over there, all right, and find it. And if you want to watch Sword of Trust, you can go to SwordOfTrust.com to search movie theaters and also streaming options. And now I will play guitar for you.